Uh, today we're continuing in our Lenten teaching series in which we're considering the events of a week that literally transformed history. It's a week that's often called Holy Week. It's the final week of Jesus' life that culminated in his crucifixion and then resurrection. And as James noted last weekend, we at times can be just so familiar with the kind of broad events of that week that really it, we can miss some of just the just staggering and even the subtle wonders of what was taking place during that week. So each weekend leading up to Holy Week for us, we're going to consider another day in that final week that led to the empty tomb. And in the series, we're asking these questions. Okay, so what are the events of that week? What does it teach us about God? What's it teach us about this kingdom that was being initiated in Jesus? And then how do the events of that week long ago guide me in living today? That's what we're looking at together. So last weekend, James led us in considering Jesus starting on a journey when he was in northern Galilee and he set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. Started traveling with his disciples down through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. And today, we're going to consider Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem on the day that we now call Palm Sunday. And again, Palm Sunday for us, want to acknowledge, it isn't for several weeks, fully aware of that. But we're going to be looking at what took place on that historical day in our study together today. Because Palm Sunday was the first day of the last week of Jesus' pre-resurrection life. And it was a monumental day, the events of that day. Because by the end of that day, the leaders of the temple were planning how they could kill Jesus. Now with the scripture we're looking at together today, it, just, it helps to remember before we even read from the scripture that really an overarching and an underlying theme of the gospels is that Jesus is king. That's why when Jesus comes, he preaches, he teaches about a kingdom. He lays out for us what life looks like is subjects in the kingdom of God. He proclaims that he himself is the long-awaited messianic king. And so just before we read from the text, let's remember, Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. But Christ was a title. It literally means anointed one. And understand in that day, an anointed one in that day was a king. Before a king began his reign, they were anointed with oil. So we just remember, to put it another way, Christ means king. So when we say Jesus Christ, that's another way of saying King Jesus. That's who we're looking at today. And our story today of Palm Sunday is about the entrance of a new king into Jerusalem. So let's pick up the story. We're in the Gospel of Luke. If you want to turn there with me in your Bible or Bible app, I encourage you to bring one or the other. Personally, prefer the hard copy, but go with whatever works for you. And, and Jesus now, again, he's come down from Galilee. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he stops in Jericho, and that's where we're going to pick it up, Luke chapter 19. And as we hear this today, remember, this is the word of God. And this is what we read in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And at this point, many of us go, we know Zacchaeus' story, right? Many of us, we sang about him. Zacchaeus was a 
wee little man. He was a little short dude, apparently. Not, don't mean that derogatory ways. I mean, in any kind of way. He, but he climbed a sycamore tree so that when Jesus was passing through town, down the street, he could see over the crowds to see Jesus. In fact, just to give you a picture of this, here's modern-day Jericho. In modern-day Jericho, you can go to Jericho in the center of town. There's behind that fence a sycamore tree. There's a sign in front that says the Zacchaeus tree. I don't think it's a real tree, personally, but uh, that, that's a Zacchaeus tree, a sycamore tree right there. And so Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree, calls Zacchaeus down, goes to Zacchaeus' home, and in his home, Zacchaeus' life is transformed. He encounters the king. He becomes a follower of Jesus. He finds salvation in Christ. And it was there in Zacchaeus' Jer- Jericho home that Jesus made that distinctive proclamation of his mission. Verse 10, he said this. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to, read it with me, seek and to save the lost. That's why God became flesh in Jesus. That's why Jesus endured Holy Week, to save lost ones like us. So that famous story of Zacchaeus happened in Jericho in the days immediately preceding Palm Sunday. Just want us to have that picture. So Jesus spent Saturday night in Jericho before heading off to Jerusalem. And then on Palm Sunday, he would have departed for Jericho likely at daybreak as he and his disciples took what would be about a 30-kilometer trek wandering across the wilderness up to Jerusalem. And I just want you to have some pictures of this, so I brought some pictures for you. Here's what the land between Jericho and Jerusalem kind of predominantly looks like. That's what it looks like there. So, so the walk to Jerusalem, it would have taken somewhere around seven to eight hours because it's a very difficult journey, tough terrain across wilderness, and it truly is uphill almost the entire way. And, and then, after this long journey, just before getting to Jerusalem, they would have approached this hill, I only have it in black and white, but that's the east side of the Mount of Olives. That's where Bethany is, the town where Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. So they came to this, and when they went up that mountain, when they got then to the top of the Mount of Olives there, Jesus and his disciples would have looked over just the stunning vista of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which you see here in its modern-day setting. And today it's the home of that golden dome of the rock. And off to the left there, there's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So that place, the Temple Mount today, is the third holiest site in all of Islam after Mecca and Medina. And, and that place where that golden dome of the rock is, that's roughly the location of where the temple would have been in Jesus' day. So the image that Jesus would have seen is he stood on the Mount of Olives, looked across that Kidron Valley there, it would have been something like this, that kind of view. In fact, Lord willing, April of 2020, we're gonna take another study tour to the Holy Lands. You'll be able, by God's grace, to stand on this very spot and see that view there. It's a magnificent view. So Jesus would have seen the great temple there. It was a temple reconstructed by Herod, but it was his father's house. It was the palace that belonged to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And that's what Jesus saw as he approached Jerusalem. Now we know this. We know that Jesus kind of, it's apparently, it already kind of prepared for this journey. And we see that because apparently he prearranged for a young donkey to be ready for him when he got to the Mount of Olives. Look at verse 35. And so they brought a young donkey to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. 
And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And, and this, I think, is kind of interesting because you ask, what's he need a donkey for now? I mean, they just walked through the desert for like 30 kilometers. Why don't you ask for a donkey in Jericho? <laughs> but let's understand, this donkey thing, this isn't primarily about Jesus' comfort, but rather this was a sign that Jesus was giving to the people in Jerusalem. Jesus was wanting to make it very clear that he is the long-awaited messianic king. Because in case he didn't know it before, he was making it crystal clear right now. Again, because this donkey thing was foretold by the prophet Zechariah, actually shortly after the time in ministry of Jeremiah, who we looked at a few weeks ago. But five centuries before Jesus was born, this is what Zechariah declared. We read this in Zechariah chapter nine and verse nine. He said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, so get this. 550 years before Jesus, Zechariah proclaimed this prophecy. Speaking of the king who would one day come into Jerusalem. So when the people saw Jesus beginning to come down the Mount of Olives on the foal of a donkey, they instantly would have recognized the sign. And that's why the disciples and the crowd that was gathering there, starting to gather, started shouting, as Matthew 21 tells us, Hosanna to the Son of David. Or as Luke 19 puts it, look at this in verse 37. This is what took place. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And we know in addition to what they were shouting and singing here, what else were they doing? They were waving palm branches. They began to wave them in the air as they shouted and sang, which is a bit of an unusual scene, really, as you consider it. But it is just packed, it is rich with meaning. When you understand the religious kind of historic background for what's going on with all these branches and declarations and hosannas. So really to try to help us get at that meaning, let's go back to what took place in the fall of every year for Jews when they celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, if you want to look at it, God commanded the Jewish people every fall harvest to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was also called the Feast of Booths. Hear me clearly, not booze, the Feast of Booths. It wasn't Oktoberfest in that way. Really, really, another name, another term for it was Sukkot. That was a Hebrew term for it. And Sukkot in Hebrew simply means booths. It was the seventh, the last feast of the year for Jews. And, and during this feast in Jerusalem, just so interesting, the Jewish people would build for themselves literally every year little booths, li little huts. And they did that. It was kind of profound in its meaning. They would do that to remember that there was a time when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years under Moses without a home, without a homeland, while they lived in little huts. 
And that's why even to the present day, you will find your Jewish friends who are kind of active in synagogue life, they will build little huts, kind of temporary shelters for themselves during the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot every year. This is an example. What They can look all different ways. Often they have palm branches on top of them. And understand, this is a big thing. Even today it is. In fact, here's a picture. This is from Israel. This is kind of like an entire backyard or alley. Those are little booths, little tabernacles, little huts. And really, if you're living and you can't build one yourself, you can rent one, literally. Here's another picture from Israel. This, this is a little rental booth being taken out to Jewish homes because it is so critical to celebrate this. Now, as, as part of this feast, what they did in ancient times, what they still do, is they repeat Psalm 113 to 118. Now, Psalm 118 is a psalm of thanksgiving after a military victory. Okay, remember that. And it is a phrase in that psalm, an interesting phrase that you actually know to a degree. This is what we read. This is Psalm 118 and verse 25. This is what it says. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Can you read that with me? Save us, we pray, O Lord. Okay, now in the original Hebrew writing, this is how that's translated. Save us is a Hebrew word, yashah. We pray is anah. Now you put those two words together, yashah anah. You want to say that with me, those two words? Yashah anah. A little faster. Yashah anah. Yashah anah. You put that together, it eventually was abbreviated into hosana. Or as we say it, hosanna. That's what it means. Hosanna is really a prayer. It is crying out, save us, deliver us. We pray, we beg, O Lord. And so that's what the Jewish people shout, and they still shout it today at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And then when you get to the final day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, that day is called the Great Hosanna, the Great Hosanna. And again, the people recite Psalm 118, and these words, deliver us, save us, we pray, we beg, O Lord. And as part of that, they're commanded to take branches from three different trees. They're to take the branch of a palm tree, a willow tree, and a myrtle tree. And they bind these together and they wave them over together, kind of in this form, while declaring certain words. So they would take palm branch, and actually it doesn't look like this. It's not unfurled like this. It is more sword-like, wrapped in myrtle and willow. They, in one hand, would take the palm branch. The other hand, they hold a citron, which is kind of like a, a big lemon in some way. And while they do that, first to the east, they raise and lower this three times, and they say these prayers along with Hosanna. Three times to the east, three times to the south, three times to the west, three times to the north, then three times up, three times down, Hosanna, as a way of physically declaring and praying, O Lord, save us, deliver us, we pray. Would you come and reign over us, we pray, to the east and to the south, to the west and the north. Reign over us, Lord, we pray. Be our king, we pray. That's a great prayer, isn't it? That's what they would do with the palm branches. And really for them, it looked again almost sword-like together. In fact, here's a picture of modern day worshipers doing this very thing in Jerusalem. It's right by the Western Wall. They're there holding this, walking through this. And they are together expressing these hosannas. You can go on YouTube and watch them do this. It's a profound scene as they do it together. And again, they are all doing this, and they were doing this to remember 
We wandered in wilderness without a home. We lived in huts, and then we knew deliverance. So all this is wrapped together. You got the Feast of Tabernacles, you got the waving of branches, the shouting of hosannas. And that happened every fall at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now you might be thinking, if you're ahead of me, what's that have to do with Palm Sunday? Because Jesus entered on Palm Sunday in the Passover, right? He entered in the spring, absolutely. But what's interesting is that Jewish scholars tell us that what many Jewish people did was they would save their branches from Sukkot, from the Feast of Tabernacles, and they would use them again at Passover to symbolically kind of sweep out or cleanse their homes. So that's why it's understandable that in addition to people on that Palm Sunday just grabbing palm branches that were near them, many of the people would have still had their palm branches in the springtime and been able, as they hear, the king's coming, to grab it from their home and run out to see this coming king coming in Jerusalem. And then along with that, when you add the people's cry of the great Hosanna, the Hosanna pleading for the messianic king, man, it all starts to fit together, doesn't it? This beautiful image of what was taking place. And then you add to this, another thing for us to remember as we reflect on this together, just a, a little bit more history, so hang with me, because it just adds to the color of Palm Sunday. 165 years before the birth of Christ. So, okay, in Bible, Bible terms, that's in between the events of the Old Testament and New Testament. In 165 BC, there was a king who took control of or conquered the Holy Land. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. And actually his people, it was the Seleucid people, they had controlled the Holy Land region for some time, but really Antiochus pressed home the conquest. He was from the region of what is modern day Syria. Interestingly, he was a Hellenist though. So in all the lands he conquered, he tried to force Greek culture on those lands, conquered lands. So in Israel, for example, he wanted to eradicate Jewish culture and religion and push Hellenistic Greek culture upon them. Now you can kind of imagine, understandably, they caused a bit of unrest among the Jewish people. So because the unrest, Antiochus brought more troops towards Jerusalem. And then to demonstrate that he was in control, he went into the temple, the, the temple to God, to Yahweh, and offered on the altar a pig in sacrifice to the pagan god Zeus. Now you can kind of imagine the abomination that was to the Jews the humiliation that was. In, in, in fact, many biblical scholars point to that event, that sacrificing of a pig, as the abomination that causes desolation that the book of Daniel refers to. So horrid was that. So, but that act, understand that, that sacrifice of a pig, it just enraged the Jews. It actually prompted a rebellion that was led by the sons of one priestly family. And that family came to be called the Maccabees. That's how they're known. Remember that name historically. And so the Maccabees led a Jewish revolt that took control eventually of the temple and much of Jerusalem away from Antiochus. And once they had control again of the temple, they ceremonially cleansed the temple and rededicated it to God. Can you imagine their joy at that day? And, and that's why even to this day, the Jewish people celebrate that cleansing and rededication of the temple in the Feast of Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah celebrates. 
that 164 BC cleansing and rededication of the temple. In fact, the Hebrew word Hanukkah, what it means is dedication. Okay, now understand this. In the Maccabee family, the son, the eldest of five key sons, his name was Judah Maccabee. Judas Maccabeus, he's also known as, even that way. But he was the one who really led the revolt. He led in this cleansing of the temple. Afterwards, he left Jerusalem for some time. But when he returned, with all the joy the people felt, the Jewish people in Jerusalem gathered when he was returning. And again, they hadn't been allowed to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles the entire time under Antiochus. So they gathered palm branches and they hailed Judah Maccabee upon his return, waving these branches and shouting out Psalm 118 to him. Hosanna to the son of David. So they did this to welcome him as their returning kind of conquering king and hopefully their new Messiah, they would hope because he conquered the occupying force. And then 24 years later, the younger brother of Judah, Simon Maccabee, he did this same thing. He took the conquest fire farther. He displaced the Syrian rulers, the armors entirely from the land. And when, then when he came back to Jerusalem in victory, you wanna guess what the people did? They gathered out to meet him, waving branches, palm branches, and shouting out Hosanna to the son of David, hailing him as their conquering king, their hopeful Messiah. Okay, so you take all that, knowing all of that. Okay, and, and when you read the story of the people of Jerusalem, waving palm branches and crying out 165 years later to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David, what do you think they were saying to Jesus? I mean, what kind of king do you think they were hoping he would be? What kind of Messiah deliverer did they want him to be? I mean, they were pretty much saying to Jesus, there on that hillside on the Mount of Olives, Jesus, all right, now do what Judah Maccabee did. Be a military deliverer against our occupiers. Do what Simon Maccabee did. Just cleanse the area from our Roman overlords. Do it. Remove their taxes from us. Bring glory back to Israel. Cast out our oppressors. Save us now, Jesus, we pray. Hosanna. That's the kind of king they were expecting in Jesus. And, and that's what they were crying out for on that ancient Palm Sunday as Jesus descended that hillside. But we know this. Jesus wasn't that kind of king. In fact, Jesus had a very different way, a different kind of kingdom he was bringing as he triumphantly entered Jerusalem. Because his was a king that really transcended all races, all ethnicities, boundaries, regions, societal dividing lines. His was a kingdom really of the heart in, in which people's allegiance was to God alone, the God of creation. That, that was his kingdom. And so Jesus laid out for them a very different path. It was a path that would have led them to internal peace, but they just couldn't understand it. They didn't want to believe it. So Jesus there, picture it, he rides into Jerusalem, but because he wouldn't be the kind of militaristic king they were looking for, think of this. By Friday of that same week, they turned on him and supported his death. By Friday. In fact, Jesus' fate would be clear that Palm Sunday, by the end of it, because he, later that day, he would go into the temple, God's house, and he would go there not to call the Jews to rise up against Rome, but he'd go there to clear out the Jewish money launderers. He went there to rebuke the Jewish hypocritical priests. 
So there's Jesus on that day, mounting the donkey on the Mount of Olives. He begins to descend the mount. And as we try to imagine, halfway down the hill even, the crowds are coming for him. They are cheering him. They are shouting Hosanna. And as Jesus looks over the scene before him, as he sees the city of Jerusalem, shouting his praises, Luke tells us this in verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Which seems like a strange response from Jesus. I mean, don't you want people to worship and praise you as king? That's what they were doing. Kind of interesting. The Gospels only describe Jesus weeping twice. It doesn't say that Jesus wept when individuals reject him. He doesn't weep when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, though he sweated great drops of blood, it said. The night before his crucifixion, he didn't weep. He, he didn't weep when they were beating him, nailing him to the cross. He didn't weep, as far as the Gospels tell us, when he was hanging there in torment. Jesus weeps in the Gospels twice. Once, as John 11 tells us, it was when his friend Lazarus dies. He shows up on the scene and sees the grief of those all around him. And then the second time he weeps is when he looks over the city of Jerusalem while being cheered and praised by the crowds while approaching Jerusalem on a donkey. And so I think we understandably ask the question, why would he weep then? <laughs> well, Luke tells us, Again, verse 41. And when Jesus drew near, the, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They will surround you and hem you on on every side. They will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation from God. You didn't realize that in me, God's showing up on your doorstep. So Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he knows what's gonna happen. He, he knows they're going to reject the path he lays out for them. He knows they're going to follow others who will take up the sword and try to rebel against the Romans. And he knows that when they do rebel against Rome, they will be utterly crushed. Jesus knows that within 40 years, the city of Jerusalem would be laying in ruins. And so as he looks over the city, over the temple, and he sees in his own mind the destruction that's gonna come upon that city. And he weeps for the people who are there. In fact, this is how it would unfold. I mean, Jesus would be crucified later that week. And then he'd conquer the grave. He'd be a resurrected king. And there'd be this kind of growing band of people who continue to follow him, but most of the people would not. And they'd continue to wait for Messiah, who would lead kind of a militaristic victory over Rome. And then in 66 AD, there would be three would-be messiahs who would try to lead an open rebellion against the Romans. And because they would have some early victories in this rebellion, Rome responded by sending the vaunted 10th legion, the best warriors Rome had, led by the next emperor of Rome, actually, whose name was Titus. 
And they began their destruction as they came to Palestine up north in Galilee. They marched south down through Samaria onto Jerusalem where all the rebels by that point had fled for safety. The walls of the city kept them out of Jerusalem for a bit of time. But the first Jews they did capture, the ones that were captured by the 10th legion were crucified outside the city walls. In fact, there were historians tell us, Josephus says there were so many crucified, the city was literally surrounded by crosses. And finally, in August of 70 AD, the Romans overwhelmed Jerusalem. And they took 90,000 Jews as slaves back to Rome. Part of them eventually built the Colosseum. And then they slaughtered 1.1 million Jews in the land. Not just men or women, but youth and children as well. They burned the city to the ground. They tore down the city. They actually excavated out the foundations of the largest buildings. They destroyed the temple. They brought down most of the outer walls of the Temple Mount. And so can you imagine? This is what Jesus could see on that Palm Sunday. Knowing they're going to pursue the path of the sword. You know, if you do travel to the city of Rome today, uh, if you go near the Colosseum, you'll see an ancient arch off to the bit. It's called the Arch of Titus. It actually is a Roman memorial from that ancient time of Titus and his victory over it his crushing of Judah and Jerusalem. That's what it commemorates. And this is what Jesus offered. He said, there are two paths laid out for you people. There's a narrow path. It's often hard, it's often difficult, but it leads to life. And it's a way of inner peace. But he said, there's a broad path. And and that path is wide, it leads to destruction. And the thing is, even today, the same offer is extended. I mean, one path through faith in Jesus leads towards life with God, leads towards hope. The other leads away from him. I mean, one path offers hope, it's joy, life. The other doesn't. But that other path is so appealing. We acknowledge that. It's the one that typically draws the most. It's the one that seems to make the most sense in our culture even today. It's the one which most people follow. But Jesus was saying then, he's saying now, I know how you feel drawn. I know what your impulse might be. But oh, please choose the narrow path. Choose me. And we know how Jesus told the Jews to respond to Rome, to live this life with God. We know what he said the narrow path would look like for them. He gave them wisdom of the kingdom. He said, this is what it looks like with me. If a Roman soldier demands that you carry his pack for a mile, what do you do? Carry it a second mile. Say a soldier demands your coat, give him your cloak also. Say the soldier strikes you on the cheek, what are you supposed to do? You turn the other cheek. Because Jesus said, this is what my kingdom looks like. This is what this path looks like. It looks like loving your enemies. It looks like praying for those who persecute you, doing good to those who wrong you. This is what life in my kingdom looks like, he says. And they couldn't see it. They couldn't. 
Even today, truly, I think when we hear those teachings of Jesus, if you hear those teachings of Jesus I just mentioned, kind of apart from their context, they can kind of sound like just lofty, sweet, esoteric principles. Like, that's a nice thing to kind of follow. But when you place those teachings in the context of the people who were literally under the control of an occupying, withering force in the Romans, man, you realize how clearly, how radical, challenging, and difficult Jesus' guidance would have been to them. Are you kidding me? Turn the other cheek to the Romans? What kind of kingdom is this? And so Jesus cries out, O Jerusalem, if you only recognize the way that truly leads to life and peace, but you would not. And truly, what was true of Jerusalem as a people is it's true of us as individuals. I mean, we have an invitation before us. It's from the same Jesus to follow this narrow path, this way of Jesus, through faith in him. And really, we ask the question, how ready are we to respond to Christ's wisdom, counsel, and kingdom in our day? Because that, that narrow path, truly at times, it doesn't make sense in our day. In the world we live in, often it doesn't. It's far from being the most popular path, but Jesus still invites us saying, even so, follow me. Follow my ways, trust in me. A number of years ago, I met with a father who was deeply burdened about his son's life because his son got messed up with drugs, kept getting into harder stuff, eventually dropped out of school, then could no longer hold down a job, so he got into crime to support his habit, was getting drawn into ever more violent culture, and his health was just falling off precipitously. And this father, as he described it, just wept as he talked about the path his son kept choosing. Because his father knew, he knew there was a path that could provide his son with hope, with healing, with peace for the, for the son he loved. But for a son, that narrow path, it wasn't even a consideration. But his son was heading towards destruction. So Jesus was declaring it throughout his ministry. He was declaring it in his final week. There are two paths we can choose in life. And one path in him, it provides forgiveness, life, hope, peace, joy. And Lent is a season where we intentionally reflect on that question, am I on the right path? Am I still following the way of Jesus? Or have I actually begun to stray from his path in areas of my life? I mean, today, I mean, would you say, are there areas in your life where you've really drifted from the path to which Jesus has called and empowered you? I mean, do you think Jesus still weeps over people who have chosen to follow a path away from him? A path that he knows leads to destruction in the end. And I know this personally. I, I know there are times in my life when I stray from the path. I'm, I might not even notice it at first because it can kind of happen incrementally. You know that experience? Where you're not paying attention. You just start drifting. And again, Lent is an opportunity for us to return to the path of Christ in areas where I, where, where we may have drifted. So I'd ask you, as we read of this Palm Sunday, where might Jesus be weeping over your life? 
Where is he calling you to trust him, to follow him? Where in our lives could we be calling out in faith, Hosanna, oh, deliver us, save us, Lord, we pray. Guide us, lead us back to the path you've guided us towards. You know, this is a beauty in this. There is still a temple to the living God. It's not in Jerusalem any longer. It's not in any building. But rather, the temple of God is now within each of us who've turned in faith to Jesus. You are a temple to the living God. You have his Holy Spirit within you to, to guide you, empower you as you follow him. Because only Jesus is the one who can seek and save the lost. So how's he prompting you today? And, and perhaps as a tangible, as a physical expression of saying, Jesus, I want to return to you in this area of my life. I want to trust you. We can come to this table. We come together and we'll break this bread. We'll pass it till we've all received it. And remember the wonder that in that holy week, he broke bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And, and likewise, we take the cup and remember as we take it, the beauty of the declaration that the blood of Jesus was poured out for you. So could this be a time when we together in faith say, Jesus, we hear you, lead us by your spirit, by your grace to follow you, to trust you in these areas of our lives. So can I do this? Can I pray before we come to the table and, and prompt us in this way? Will you bow your heads with me before we receive the meal? Again, just before I pray, I just, I prompt you with that question. What is God saying to you? Right now, is there an area in your life where God's prompting you to respond to him, to follow him, to trust him today, right, right now? What is God saying to you? And then that question, what are you going to do about it? How will you respond to him? So our gracious Father, we come now thanking you for your mercy, your grace, your patience with us. And you, perhaps even more than we, you know the places in our lives that we seek to be hidden where we resist your guidance. And so we today pray, Hosanna, deliver us, Lord, we pray. Forgive us for the compromises in our lives, for the compromises even in our nation, and pray even as we receive this bread and cup you would feed us, strengthen us with the presence of Christ. And in this we pray, and again, all God's people say, amen. Let's come to the table.